and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast exploring Scottish history and culture by delving into tales, both famous and forgotten. That's right. Each week we look at a part of Scotland from a new perspective. This episode is a continuation of last week's, where we began our journey deep into the Covesey Caves. If you haven't heard that episode, jump back now and give it a quick listen for some context and sacrifice. If you've already listened, then welcome back and get ready for some more wild tales of Cowsey Caves. I'm Annie, a Highland historian. And I'm Jenny, a Highland magician. But more on that in a second. Last week, we looked at the formation of the caves and the early human presence in them. Which involved a lot of sacrifice, ritualistic and spiritual practices. Yes, it was a gruesome and mysterious place. This week, we're moving forward in time to look at ways in which humans have interacted with the astounding cave system in more recent history. The caves lie on the Murray Coast, an hour east of Inverness, overlooking the cold North Sea. The stunning sandstone caves lie beneath a steep cliff. We left the caves in the late Iron Age, about 600 common era, where Pictish people were carving their own stories into the walls. The next stop on our journey through time is the 17th century. And while there is little available information about the caves being used during the time in between these two periods, we can only assume that through the centuries, many people passed through the space and it served many different purposes. Although, judging by the next story we have, which is from the 1600s, things didn't get any less weird down in the caves, only more magical. Ah, yes, because by the 17th century, the famed Wizard of Gordonson was believed to be using the caves for all sorts of magical shenanigans. Sir Robert Gordon, the third baronet of Gordonston, was born in 1647. He was an intelligent child and completed his education in Italy, where he studied chemistry and mechanics. Okay, now in this time period, the study of chemistry was still linked with that of alchemy, a kind of mix of science, philosophy and mysticism. But it's also the cusp of an age of enlightenment, where science and technology are beginning to develop at such a rapid pace. New and exciting ideas and experiments are appearing all over. However, across Europe, people were wary of what they couldn't understand. Merely a hundred years before the Wizard of Gordonston, Mary, Queen of Scots, had passed the Witchcraft Act, which was partially fuelled by religious tensions, and it banned all witchcraft, sorcery and necromancy, though was really trying to dampen the superstitions of these things. By the time we get to the Wizard of Gardenston, Scotland has already witnessed the horror of the great Scottish witch hunts, which weren't great at all, but historians call them so. Jeez, well, upon the Baron's return to Scotland, the highly superstitious and religious locals didn't trust his travels, his alchemist ways, or his spooky behaviour, and they believed that he had learned the art that must not be named, and was thus a wizard. It was rumoured that he had sold his soul to the devil for 30 years of knowledge and understanding of science. And boy, did he use this devilish knowledge for amazing feats. The locals said he conducted mad experiments in his perfectly round house, called the Round Square, which he built so that the devil couldn't corner him. The locals suspected a secret tunnel from the Round Square to the largest of the Covesey Caves, what we now call Sculptor's Cave. 
They said the wizard would travel down through his tunnel into the caves to play cards with the devil and dance with unclothed women. And so they gave the cave the name Hell's Hole. Okay, so once again, we're seeing the caves being linked to the supernatural, to the mystical and unknown worlds that lie somewhere between myth and reality. Mm. A wizard and the devil dancing in this in-between space and bringing both a kind of life and death back to the cave. Yeah, but it wasn't just dancing with the devil. Things got a lot weirder than that. It was said that he lit a fire for seven long years and would just sit and stare into the flames. After these long, eye-watering years, one day he looked up and finally, lo and behold, his patience was rewarded. There, sitting in the flames, was a mystical salamander. A mystical salamander? Oh yeah, you bet. And you know what he did? He captured the salamander and he tortured it for all of his magical knowledge. That poor salamander. It, it wasn't for nothing. His salamander gave him the knowledge to create a mechanical sea pump for the British Navy, more powerful than any sea pump before, which he took to London to show King James II, who was very impressed by his wizardly, lizardly sea pump. Wait, he sold his soul for a sea pump? Not the weirdest thing I've heard done for a sea pump. <laughs> <laughs> next well so after 30 years of devil powered antics his debt was finally to be paid as the clock near 12 midnight a thunderous storm hurled outside and in a panic and suddenly realizing the devil might not be fooled by the lack of corners he fled on horseback to the nearest kirk which was 20 miles away the devil hot in his heels the whole time just as the kirk came into view he heard the bell strike midnight and the devil's hounds tore into his horse he was thrown to the ground in front of the kirk his neck breaking on the twelfth strike. Wow, so that's quite the tale there, Jenny. Yeah. I also did some research on the wizard, and I actually found that in reality he died in his bed in the year 1704, and his loving widow erected the Michael Kirk, a small church on the school grounds of Gordonston, in his memory. Ah, either way, right? The salamander went on to overcome the torment inflicted upon him and lived a happy and healthy life. And I, and I will say this, Hogwarts is set in the Scottish Highlands, right? So don't write this off as fiction completely. Well, <laughs> speaking of literature, <laughs> William Hay wrote a lovely poem about the wizard in the 1800s. It was published in his Linty of Murray. Jenny, would you like to read it? Oh boy, would I. All right, here we go. <clears throat> oh, who has not heard of that man of renown, that wizard Sir Robert of Gordonstone? The wisest of wizards, the Murray of Cheel, the despot o' Duffus, and friend o' the devil. The man who the folks o' Murray feared, the man who the friends o' Satan revered. Oh, never to mortal was evil renown like that o' Sir Robert o' Gordonstone. Wow, Jenny, it was like you were possessed by a ghost. I'm, I'm swaying quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So as well as these mythical rumours of magic connected to Kaisi Caves, we also have genuine records of them being used to support illegal smuggling. Because these caves are close to Aberdeen, which is a major support city for Scotland, we see them used as a smuggler's network across the kind of smaller beaches and caves along the northeast coast. My favourite story is that of Robert Gordon. A relative to the Wizard of Gordonston? 
Unfortunately not. Aww. Just a victim of a common name. Okay. So this Robert Gordon is actually born just a couple of decades after the Wizard of Gordonston. But instead of magic and pumps, he made his money in smuggling. Oh, cool. So that means that the Covesy Caves were also smugglers' caves. Yes. Oh, what were they What were they smuggling? Alcohol, mostly. Oh, well, uh, alcohol wasn't illegal, so why smuggle it? Tax avoidance. Uh. So tax had to be paid on all goods taken into the country by ship. However, if you snuck it into the country, hiding from the port officials, then you avoid the tax. Okay. So if a smuggler's ship was caught trying to do this, then they would simply declare that their goods were bound for elsewhere. So for example, in the north of Scotland, smugglers would say that they were taking their cargo to Norway and they would be allowed to continue on their way. However, they would actually use sheltered beaches or coves, areas that wouldn't be monitored by officials to take the contraband onto the mainland of Scotland in smaller boats. Ah, so it was a classic case of tax evasion, of saving money and having a good old time. Indeed. And Robert Gordon of Bordeaux was a really interesting fellow. He was a notorious smuggler. Not only that, he was also a Jacobite sympathiser. So he helped support a massive web of Jacobite smugglers. Scottish merchant skippers were cunning and there was a massive amount to be made in the smuggling of brandy. But also, as well as contributing money to the Jacobite cause, they could use the smugglers' network as a kind of mail system to exchange notes between Jacobite plotters. Oh, wow, so it's like an old-school dark web. Indeed, it's, it's this marvellous exchange of information through sneaky caves. <gasps> and though the Covesy Caves are difficult to access, there's a bay that you could paddle into only if you know the coast very well. Oh, uh, yeah, because, I mean, they're also, they're also a dangerous place, you know, like, it's hard to get down because of the cliffs and all the local myths about the Wizard of Gordonston to frighten off the locals. You can see how it all helped make them a great part of a covert network. Completely. Later on, during the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, the caves were actually used against the Jacobites. Sculptors' Caves was used to hide the horses of the family of Gordonston from the Jacobite rebels for fear that they would be taken and utilised in battle. This is fairly impressive, simply because getting the horses down to the caves would have been quite difficult. And for the Jacobites alike, because stealing a herd of horses from the caves would have been a nightmare. Pun intended. Um, did it work though? Were the were the horses safely hidden from the rebels? Well, the pun didn't work, <laughs> but hiding the horses did work. And because they hid the horses in these caves, it gave them a new name, Sir Robert Stables. What was wrong with the pun? Moving on up into the late 1820s. Yes, I love the Roaring Twenties. Where I found some very curious tales of groups of Scottish travellers living in the Cowsey Caves. <laughs> wow. I find this group of Scottish travellers really intriguing, but the newspaper articles that I was reading about them were very vague. So I asked a Scottish traveller, Davy Donaldson, who advocates for traveller communities, if he'd ever heard of them. And he explained to me that Scottish Indigenous travellers are very closely connected to Native Highlanders, 
which is why many traveller families have clan names, such as McPhee or Stuart. Oh, okay. It's, I mean, it's new to me that Scotland even had indigenous travellers. But I, I can see how that makes sense. There are definitely parallels between traveller ballads and other types of Scottish folk song. So I'm guessing there's other cultural similarities too? Yes. So, for example, some people from the older generations spoke a Gaelic-based cant. However, that's quite rare nowadays. So it's language based on Gaelic. It's got similarities, but also differences. Oh, okay, cool. Davy also told me that his ancestors lived in the caves. They were from the McPhee and Lindsay families. And his family nowadays still go to stay near Kelsey, but not in the caves. God, that's amazing. I, it, it, I think it's great that we found this story that we were so interested in and that we thought was history, but actually it's a, a living tradition. And I guess, is oral culture and storytelling still very much at the heart of traveller culture? Yes, completely. Ah. The Scottish traveller communities keep their history within ballads and stories and oral culture. But also, intriguingly, a lot of indigenous Scottish travellers follow the roots that have been handed down for generations. Mm. And a lot of these camping points are actually in key Pictish sites. That's so cool. Which ties into everything that we've learned about Kousey being of significance to the Picts. Ah, oh, that's so, I don't know, there's something about that that's just really fascinating. But if, um, if we rewind a bit, what were the travellers doing in the caves in the 1820s? So throughout the Victorian period and into the 20th century, I found multiple reports of traveller communities living in caves in the north of Scotland. Now, there's some really complex reasons for why Scottish travellers would be living in caves in the Victorian period. There were social prejudices against traveller communities, which would have meant that they didn't always have the freedom to camp. Also, bad weather or winters could have driven them to seek shelter in caves. So the articles I found were from newspapers originally published in Murray, which is the area where the caves are based, but they were also picked up by London newspapers. Now, I believe these London newspapers would have been drawn in by the duality of being able to present a romanticised but slightly barbaric representation of the rural north of Scotland. There are reports of between 30 and 60 travellers living in the caves for several years in the late 1820s, this group including men, women and children and they also kept some donkeys as livestock wow and i guess i mean this newspaper is probably going to reflect some ingrained prejudices against traveler people and it's likely exaggerating the stories to sensationalize them right yes we need to be very cautious with how we read stories presented in the media especially when we're talking about communities who have faced persecution mm. this article from the london courier and evening gazette published on the 26th of October 1829, gave a bit of a whimsical description of the travellers in the cave. Jenny, can you channel your inner Londoner to read this quote? <clears throat> I'll do my best, governor. <clears throat> Gypsy wedding. Most of our local readers are aware that for several years past, a colony of gypsies to the number of 30, consisting of men, women and children, have tenanted a subterraneous sort of residence at Cove Sea known by the name of El's Owl. This singular place of residence is entirely the work of nature and consists mostly of excavated rock. Its eccentric inmates somewhat happily characterise it as a house not made with hands. They take it into their heads at regular intervals of time, once every 12 months, we believe, to get up a bona fide marriage of two of themselves. 
The matches are not made in accordance with the feelings or predilections of the parties more immediately interested, but by majority of votes by the whole grown-up portion of the strange group. Thank you, Jenny. Oh, oh that was a lot. <laughs> oh, that was... No problem, Governor. <laughs> Jiminy Cricket. He certainly channeled your inner Charles Dickens character. Something was channeled. I don't know what it was, but something. It was some salamander magic. So this quite surreal newspaper then goes on to describe the wedding ceremony, which is undertaken by an elder riding a donkey. And my favourite part describes the after party in which the wedding party drank the local pubs dry to the extent that they had to walk three miles to the next village. <laughs> and then they had a wee bit of a fight, an exceptionally jolly brawl, which was described as though it was somehow a vital part of the ceremony, which everyone seemed to enjoy. And then they returned to the Hell's Hole cave. Yeah, it's funny how many Scottish weddings end up in a Hell's Hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Scottish travellers were reported to leave Kaiseria in February 1830. They up and leave the caves dramatically and speedily after reporting being visited by a supernatural presence. Oh, yes, ghosties. Yes. They said that late one night, when all of the travellers were asleep, they were woken by a giant ghost holding an eerie lantern in each hand which descended upon them inside the cave. <laughs> Terrified and traumatised, they packed up everything in a chaotic rush and fled, spending the night in nearby Elgin and then leaving the area altogether. Jeez, oh man. We don't know what happened that night or what they really saw, but the newspapers report them leaving in a hurry with children not having enough time to even put on their shoes. So this is... Possibly, again, the newspapers sensationalising the travellers to make them seem a bit superstitious and mysterious. Uh, but also, after everything we learned in the previous episode about the Bronze Age people and the Iron Age people, about the sacrifices and ritualistic killings that went on in these caves, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a ghost or two in there. It wasn't a ghost, Jenny. That's your opinion, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was, Kaiser is still an important place for Scottish travellers. Personally, what I like to imagine when I think of Scottish travellers living at Kaiser would be the ballads and songs sung within the caves. If you ever have the fortune of visiting the Kaiser caves, then you experience an absolutely enchanting ambience. It feels as though the sea is echoing your breath and it makes you wish for dusk and firelight and the warmth of people shaving stories. Cave dwelling actually became illegal in Scotland as part of the Defence of the Realm Act in 1915. This is to keep the coastline free from fires during the war. However, this didn't stop people. We still see people living in the caves on the census. So... Though technically no one lived in the caves after 1915, it's nice to know that fires still burn inside them. We explored Kaisi at different times of the year, but for the podcast we visited in late spring and we had the sheer delight of seeing young fulmers in nests upon the rock. I mean, to me, they did just kind of look like seagulls. Aye, okay. Fulmers look a little bit like herring gulls, with their soft blue-grey backs and their gleaming white fronts. But they are the same family as petrels, so this is a type of bird that has a wee tube above its beak, 
which helps it get rid of seawater from its body because they consume so much salty water when they're feeding. They also have very kind eyes. They're shy bird, but they do have a bit of a cackle call. Oh, like the Wizard of Gordonson. Um, I, I guess it's a wee bit wizardly, but nothing like what you just did. Um, no, the foamer sounds more like the cliffs are laughing a little bit. Oh, okay. And well, you made us give the foamers a really wide berth when we were walking by them because their defense mechanism is to vomit up any foul-smelling oil when they feel threatened by predators. Yes, that's where they get their names. Uh, Fulmer is Old Norse for stinking or foul. God, I mean, surely this isn't the best defense mechanism. I mean, can, can you imagine evolving just to throw up every time you get a fright? No wonder the locals thought the cave fumes were wizardly alchemy. Aye, well, this defense is actually dangerous if it happens to you frequently because if baby Fulmers are constantly having to empty their gut to produce this horrible smelling oil, they can die from malnutrition. Oh, jeez. But, but when they do survive into adulthood, you love them because they fly like a kite, right? They fly so much more beautifully than a kite. They fly like... And the Wizard of Gordonson. Okay, I'm, do- I'm done. I'm <laughs> done. I just got super deep into research about salamanders and fire and wizards. Um, that's my last one, I swear. Don't let that research turn you cold-blooded, Jenny. Oh, okay, Annie. So, ornithologist <laughs> Edmund Seelis gives a glowing description of the flight of the fulmer. He states that one cannot credit that so a dove-like and delicate creature should display such a power on the wing. What the fulmer avoids is to beat the air. It achieves its glittering conquest by detecting the variations of wind currents and by minimum expenditure of energy or muscular movement. The result is that the fulmer achieves over the face of the water what we dream of the soul in the fifth dimension. Oh, sorry, I was just dreaming of wizards. Mythological wizards are nowhere near as lovely as the reality of a full moon. Eh, it looks like a seagull. So I love the full moon because it ties together everything that we've spoken about in the Cow Sea episodes. It's a wild seabird designed perfectly for this habitat of rock and air and sea. When it flies, it's as though it's in between worlds. Sometimes just another fluttering seabirds, sometimes like a spirit or even a ghost. Uh, yeah, I can, I can get that, okay, because you can see why the Bronze Age and the Iron Age people used the caves as a mortuary, you know, when, when all the marine animals around, from the fulmers to the seals and the dolphins, they all look and move as though they know the secrets of travelling between different worlds. I don't, I don't know, the wildlife adds to this feeling that it's a liminal space. Yes, when I first saw the Kaisi Caves, it was very overwhelming. I saw hundreds of names carved on the walls. It was like being completely swallowed by history. I've worked in many archives, and this still felt like the most powerful experience of being inside a living museum, part of an evolving archive. It feels like you've been shrunk down and are inside an ancient artifact. I think it's very valuable to contrast the feeling inside the caves to the views outside the caves. When you look at these millennia-old cliffs and see the fulmer fly, you realise that nature has been working on her museum for so much longer than humans have. It's this kind of experience that let us understand history in the north of Scotland. We know Celtic cultures have a very strong bond with the natural environment, 
And the best way for us to understand this is to actually just go outside and allow ourselves to be immersed in nature. Best stories are like the flight of the full moon. Once you've slowed down and listened to the old tales or sat and watched full moons fly, it feels as though the boundaries between space and time can maybe just be a little bit blended. Yeah, I mean, to me, the caves are like a constant thread tying us from the modern day to the ancient past. And we can walk that thread like a tightrope through time, balancing on the boundary between land and sea, reality and mysticism, the living world and the realms of the dead. From the Caledonian orogeny 350 million years ago to people carving their names in the walls 30 years ago, we can catch glimpses of time's past and have to use our imaginations to fill in the gaps. You know, using the natural world and the human marks upon it to trace the story of the caves. In the caves, you feel grounded in the history of Scotland. You can hear the waves of change echoing through the walls. In Scotland, it's common for people to come and visit the well-known touristy places. But if you just veer off the beaten track, you'll find that it's filled with more history and life than any tourist hotspot. We should all focus more on slow tourism. Rather than blasting through as many places as possible and taking photos for Instagram along the way, take the time to immerse yourself in a place and really absorb the energies and cultures of the past. Oh, that's lovely, Jenny. I really do agree with you on how slow tourism helps both the communities and the environments of the Highlands. Mm. But if you do visit the Kausi Caves, then please don't mark on the walls. We want more than anything to be able to preserve these precious Pictish drawings. The best things you can do on the Kausi Caves, like me and Jenny did, is pick up and take away some of the washed up plastic waste. Exactly. Let's help keep this place beautiful, unique and natural for the next generations. Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. We really appreciate your support. Please do tell your friends if you enjoy this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and like us on Facebook. And we have a website, storiesofscotland.com. Until next week, Slanjava. Slanjava. Slow it down. Brief. It's just how I could cockney, so you speak real fast. <laughs> In my head, they do. <laughs> In your head. In me head. All right, here we go. <laughs> Jesus.